the point is, maybe Stephen King knows we're doing this right now. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, Christmas time already. No, earlier than that. <laughs> October Smith already. Except one month earlier. Oh, the September's month of the year? Quite. Oh, I love it so much. It is Stephen King timber. Oh. Stephen King, you always capture us at the most inopportune time. How about that fucking photo that I showed you earlier? Was that the funniest fucking thing you've ever seen in your life? He literally looks like an even more coked out Charles Manson. Nah, you could stick him in a sewer grate and people would be like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't want to go down there. Go that's there. A, Yep. Yep. No, that's horrifying. <laughs> I feel like uh, the, the, the It prototype like came from that mugshot of him. What the fuck was that picture? Was that like his Halloween costume? As himself? Yeah, but he like, somebody was like, hey, Steven, make your crazy face. And he's like, I'm doing it. And they were like, put it on your column. Your newspaper I don't know. That looked like just his face to me. King's Garbage Truck. What? <laughs> That's what it was called. Like when I read King's the thing. King's Sewer it, Clown. Oh, yeah, yeah, It was yeah. like King's Garbage Truck. Uh, and it was like a column in a newspaper, which means you know he was like, I don't know about everybody else, but I don't like what's happening on the main campus right now. In Derry. I get it. The main campus. <laughs> and you make a joke about main annex. I see what you did there. The main campus. Yeah. Um, hey, it's Stephen King Timber. We're a month early this year. Um, we usually do Stephen King in October, but we just decided to do it in September because that horrifying movie with the really hot guy that they made ugly mm-hmm. to be a clown, mm-hmm. uh, happened. Did you see that movie? I have not, but people keep telling me it's good. I had planned to discuss it with you, but I will just say. Oh, so you've seen it. Yes. I thought they just, so Here's what was weird about it. I don't think this is a spoiler. Well, maybe it is. It's been weeks. I don't care. They were just children the whole time. And then it ended with chapter one. And I was like, this whole thing was a prequel. They're going to make this four fucking movies. Somebody told me they were going to make two movies. That's too many movies. This does not need to be two. It was so boring. Two movies, too slow? It was good and it had to... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Two penny, two wise. Um, <laughs> that was good. Um, <laughs> I'm on it. Um, it was like fun, and it had like cool references, and there was a lot of like like there was some stuff in it that was like cool throwbacks to like old horror and was stuff. Was it like all that. Night of the Comet? Because I only care about Night of the Comet. Yes, officially <laughs> declaring it right now. That's my canon. Um, and it was like good, but but I just felt like it, for a two and whatever hour move two and change hour movie. To only be the first half, I was like, this is the fucking Hobbit all over again. Let me die. Why is this I mean, Was there a bunch of people trying to figure out what they were going to eat? No, because that's the Hobbit, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is Stephen King. I love Stephen King shows. I love picking like the biggest, longest, most coked out books. They're so fucking problematic. And usually people really love them. And I like them too. I read a lot of Stephen King growing up, as did any child probably born Same in the 80s. here, this kid. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just really fun to go back and be like... <laughs> talking car like i don't know it's just ridiculous um it's a ton of fun i read this one when it was in middle school uh in like uh sixth or sixth grade i think i don't i don't remember the exact year but i think it was the sixth grade i finished it a week before the miniseries came out Mm -hmm. and then so i i that was my first 
big boy experience of being like, well, they botched the whole thing. That was your first of being a snob. Yeah. That's when like, you learn to be a snob. Yeah, yeah. was it. Like, That's and great. the idea of coming to the defense of it, it's like, it's like if your dad like threw up on somebody's car, but he throws up all the time and you're yeah. just like, well, it was a shitty car. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I will say one of my favorite things about the show is like that thing we were just talking about, how it's like so many terrible it jokes. Um, Baruch did such a great job of every time he said it, he, he like emphasized, emphasized it. it, but not so much that you noticed it, just that I noticed it because I kept getting stuck in these terrible yep. Ab- Abbott and Costello routines. Uh, first up is Mike Hanlon, um, which I love the idea that he's like the only black guy in the group, but he's bullied because he's like Presbyterian. <laughs> I think that's so stupid. Mike Hanlon awoke coughing with a cold sweat after his dream diverted from his usual only duty in life. Staying in Derry, Maine, and becoming a plot device into furthering every other character's story but his own. These were usually his only dreams. Tonight he dreamt a kind of happy dream, one where he and Carol Danner end up dating and begin to start a life and a family together. Mike secretly loved Carol, though. He wasn't sure where she came from and didn't know her address, even though he knew literally everything about Derry. She had no family or friends in town. Did she even work at the library? He didn't care. She looked like Madonna in her short platinum blonde hair, fingerless fishnet gloves, and she took, and she took, uh, she too took to rolling around on the floor and furniture while listening to Like a Virgin on her eight-track player, like you do. She drove him crazy. The amount. Different, hmm, the amount different color shoulder, okay. Uh, the amount of different colored shoulder padded blazers he brought in in an attempt to look like the members of Duran Duran or some other popular guy white people liked in the 80s was astounding. But still, she never looked at him. Completely, he delved into research about Derry to keep his mind off of Carol, and after coming across the Derry standpipe in a book, he suddenly remembered the pact he made with his friends the summer of 1958. The recent murders in town got him thinking about the gruesome scene that happened there 27 years ago. Carol had been watching him while stacking books in the library recently. Mike, Mike hardly noticed her these days. His only living purpose was to make the phone call that reunites his friends. The pieces were falling together as he felt he had definite proof that would call them all back. Carol swiftly came to sit beside him. She watched him as he kept reading and taking notes. Catching her sitting there from the corner of his eye, Mike turned to face her. What is it you're working on on so hard on, she asked with a small, sultry sigh, and moved to put a hand on his upper leg. Mike became listless and tried to crack an honest smile as he responded sheepishly, sheepishly, uh, the history of dairy. It's very fascinating, you know, because we have lobster and, um, <laughs> and uh, forests, he said. He lied. He knew Maine was boring as fuck. He hated this fucking place. The lobster was good, though. That sounds totally cool. Can you, like, tell me more about it? I'm not doing anything after the library closes. (gasps) Do you want to grab a drink? Carol asked, sounding not interested about what he had been saying at all. He almost too eagerly accepted. 
He had no idea why she was talking, taking an interest in him now. The night became a whirlwind. One drink turned to three, which turned to five. Mike found himself divulging all of the information he had gathered about the mysterious dairy murders. Oddly, Carol did not appear to be as drunk as him. This has been, like, totally the best night of my life, Carol enthusiastically responded when uh, the bar was closing. Mike never thought about how he was obviously the most dull person on the face of the earth, or that Carol sounded as if she were a character from Clueless. If she even was a librarian, maybe she's like Elle Woods, you know, ditzy but smart, he thought to himself. He thought about a film that wouldn't have been made for another 15 years. <laughs> we should go have like a jolt cola at your place and you can tell me even more about this mystery. He had tried to get her to talk about herself, but she kept insisting on talking about the horrors of the town. Oh my gosh, so like maybe we should solve the murders. Have you found any leads? Mike hears her say as she walks towards the bathroom at his house. He looks up to reply but loses his train of thought when he sees Carol standing in his living room wearing nothing but her fingerless fishnet gloves, leg warmers, and a bush of silky pubes. <laughs> yeah. She walks across the room where he was sitting on the couch. Briefly, Mike catches her reflection in his mounted wall mirror. Suddenly, he, stand, he, he stands to his feet, noticing something strange in the mirror, but then when he looked again, there was nothing out of the ordinary. Are you like okay? Yes, I may have just had too much to drink, Mike suggests. I think you may need to lay down. Oh, no, I think you're the one that needs to lay down, she whispers while helping him back down onto the couch. He became consumed with the idea of laying with her, a feeling that made its way through his body directly to his schlong. <laughs> Carol watched his cock grow hard and proceeded to slob on his knob, like horn on the cob. The combination of her conolingus and the smell of Aquanet almost made Mike jizz on his plastic-covered couch. <laughs> she then sits on his pole facing him with her feet resting on his shoulders. Do you know what this position is called? She asked. He shook his head no. Responding sexily, she said, it's called the spider. <laughs> Mike did not care about its name because he was slipping into an orgastic bliss. She was making a slow, circular motion with her hips, the same way she does when listening to Madonna and began to speak again. What if the monster can be like anything? Or like go after anyone? Mike was kind of weirded out that she was still talking about a murdering monster while fucking, but hey, maybe it was a fetish thing of hers and continued sleeping into the abyss of her sweet, sweet vagina. And maybe, like, the monster isn't always so hungry. Maybe it just wants an hors d'oeuvre between hunting. Uh-huh, yeah, or hors d'oeuvre be uh -huh, between hunting. He muttered, on the verge of coming. I'm sure that frightened flesh is good, but I bet enraptured flesh is better. And with that, Mike began to feel a pressure and a white-hot pain around his penis. It felt as if two rows of spiky teeth were biting right through his member. 
He opened his eyes and looked back at Carol. Teeth were coming from the walls of her cooch and severing his cock right off. She stared back at him with a blank expression, watching him bleed out from where his dick had been. Walking away and speaking calmly between his screams, she continues, I intend to find out. <laughs> Epilogue. <laughs> Carol puts on a dark denim jacket with the words man-eater on the back. She lights a cigarette, takes a drag, and looks back at the town of Derry. Easier than taking an arm off a baby, she begins, walking into the sunset, singing like a virgin. She stops singing, turns around and says, see you in 30 years, Derry. And she continues on into the evening, like a virgin, oh, like a virgin, feels so good inside. The end. That was Mike Hanlon, as written by India Sabatel. Who's another person that joined us, us off Twitter, and I adore her. Um, okay, so we assigned two iterations of it. Um, I wanted to do more, but we decided to keep it movie-friendly. So uh, the next version, or the next character is it as Pennywise, the clown, who's that creep that hangs out in sewers with balloons. All right. Our next story, children, is titled Pound Foolish. Literally, I literally read that title a week ago and just got it. <laughs> uh, here we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Derry, Maine, 1929. A hail of bullets slammed into metal, pavement, meat, and bone. The Derry police barely required provocation to surprise a small gang of criminals and tear them to bits in a bloody shootout. What a perfect way to end another 30-year slumber and ring in a new harvest of fear. If there were any reason for a universe-roving embodiment of pure malevolence to linger in one spot for thousands of years, it was this. Derry never disappointed. The instigator of the carnage floated from a nearby third-story window in its favored form of Pennywise the Clown. Intoxicated from lapping up such a delectable dread, it grinned crimson and floated to the ground below. But before it could perform its usual escape back into the bowels of the town, a brash greeting caught its ear. Hey, trooper. It turned to face another clown. One in a baggy romper with a loud flower pattern. It had seen clowns before. What was so different about this one? The heck you doing in your agent suit? You down from the county fair? The voice, the voice. This was the first female clown it had ever encountered. It was fascinated. It could only nod, yes. I'm Daisy. What's your moniker? Pennywise, it responded, taking care not to say it as blood curdlingly uh, growl as he usually did. But why? Why would it deliberately not frighten someone? We're just passing through ourselves. Say, 
We lost two clowns to a traveling medicine show. Need a job? That floating gag of yours sure is something. Daisy's manner, her curious speech, her sunny grin, they all aroused sensations it had never encountered. An odd weakness mixed with its excitement and warmth. Before Pennywise knew it, it had its own tent and two shows a night in the Candom Brothers Traveling Circus. More troubling, it left Derry for the first time since before time was marked. Each night, the circus traveled further away from Maine, making it a little weaker. Yet, the attachment it felt to Daisy grew stronger. But why? The answer finally came just outside of Wooster. After the show, the other clowns grabbed a case of bootleg Canadian whiskey and headed to meet their cohorts in a sister circus the next town over. It and Daisy declined, instead, strolling through the encampment, enjoying the quiet. The full moon gave their polka-dotted rompers a faint glow. I got something to ask you, Pennywise. Daisy looked up at him, eyes shining. That floating trick you do, could you do it with me? Pennywise felt as if it had waited since the big bang for that question. It gathered her up, and they rose into the moonlight. For a moment, they were the only two clowns in the world. They kissed, long, lingering, and sloppy, smearing her red grease paint into a rosy gash across their cheeks. They floated. Its head floated. Its heart floated. Everything, for one brief, blissful moment, floated. She nodded to a spot at the edge of the woods. Can you take us there? She asked. They touched down, and she led him by the hand up a dirt road. There it sat. Four narrow tires, crested cab, iron grill, a 1928 Ford Model A, front fenders reflecting the full moon. She nodded at the car. I paid a rube a few bucks so we could have some privacy. Come on! Quizzically, he followed her into the cab. They sat in the rumble seat, their gaze fixed upon each other, their breathing growing shallower. Daisy reached behind her graceful neck. I want to show you something. She undid her tunic, revealing a smooth shoulders and small, firm breasts. Her pert nipples stood up like tiny, pink clown noses. <laughs> they leapt to each other, kissing passionately. Its gloved hands roughly traced her supple, athletic form. She reached down and undid the large buttons on Pennywise's fly. What emerged made her <gasps> inhale deeply. Huh, my, I guess it's true what they say about clown shoes. <laughs> she leaned back on the seat and pushed her baggy pants down to her ankles. Are you ready? Uh, ready for what? It asked quizzically, its mind swimming with desire and hormones. Daisy rolled her eyes. Virgins. Pulling Pennywise on top of her, she reached down and took its massive circus peanut into her moist, her moist, moist funnel cake. Take me. Take me, Pennywise, she whispered. She whispered as it entered her. Pennywise soon got the hang of it, thrusting gently at first 
then with such velocity that they tipped off the narrow rumble seat onto the floor of the auto, they giggled at this unplanned pratfall. <laughs> the shivering terror of a child, the thrilling gush of an innocent's torn jugular, pleasures it had enjoyed since the beginning of time, yet none of it felt as exquisite as the inside of Daisy when she angled her hips and rotated them in a move she'd nickname making the cotton candy. <laughs> yes, yes, she screamed. Oh God, Pennywise, plow me, you pasty yellow-toothed bastard. <laughs> she was climbing to the big top. Suddenly, they heard a slam. The heel of a clown shoe thudded against its lower back. What the hell? Pennywise turned its head as much as it could and saw Misty and Rum Rum, two other clowns from the show, drunkenly kissing and tearing off their own clothes. They, too, had paid for the use of the car. The door slammed open again. Jangle and dangle. The two clown juggling act jumped in as well oblivious to anything but each other and stinking of Canadian hooch. They rolled on top of Pennywise and Daisy, pinning them down. Oh shit, whispered Daisy. Oh no, I know what this is. We gotta leave, Pennywise. We gotta leave now. Daisy wiggled out from under him and slid out the door into the dry ground. Pennywise, come on. Get out of there. Don't you know what's going on? Pennywise strained every muscle in his weakened form, but it was too late. There were just too many damn clowns in the car. <laughs> it looked up to see Daisy running away. That view was cut short as the door pulled closed with a fantastic creak. How many clowns could possibly fit in this car? <laughs> it screamed. More clowns piled in, squashing Pennywise against the wooden floor, Fizzle and Lulu. Peanut and Fudge, Casey, Patch, Bobo, Alan, Jean-Baptiste, the mine who nobody liked. And the half-pint teabag. Pennywise grew dizzy. Dizzy from the breathy jostling, the falsetto grunts, the <laughs> The reek of sweaty clown rompers and depression-era halitosis. Painted foreheads and cheeks rubbed ivory smears into the seats and windows, a grim harbinger of what was literally to come. <laughs> and the honking. Dear God, the honking. <laughs> the first climax was Stinkies. That triggered the next one, and the next like a string of cream-filled cream firecrackers. The sex effluvia sloshed a flash flood over the seats, sliding down to the floor towards the unconscious Pennywise. When poor Pennywise awoke, it was alone and floating, but not by magic, no. He was floating atop a thick, dank puddle of whiskey, whipped cream, and gallons of unspeakable clown fluids. <laughs> That's when it knew it had to return to Dury. It would hide the inedible stench of the clown orgy by living in sewers. It would frighten and murder and gorge itself of the sweetest, youngest fears this tiny planet could offer. 
But it would never again leave its place of safety because it, Pennywise, Bob Gray, had learned a mortifying truth. More than any giant carnivorous spider spirit, more than any drooling axe murderer, there is nothing in the known universe as objectively terrifying as a carload of sex clowns. <laughs> the end. And that was Pennywise the Clown, as written by Ken Groby, returning champion. He just keeps winning. He's on a streak. That was the first place winner. Yeah, again. So Bill Denbro, he's the uh, he's the Stephen King stand-in in this particular Stephen King book, right? Does he he like pretty much always has a stand-in for himself, right? Kind of. Yeah, there's always. He like definitely a had one in what's the one where the one we did last year where they're all in the big house and um, uh, Pet Cemetery. Yeah, there was a there's a stand for him in Pet Cemetery. There's always a writer. There's always like and a weird writer with a ponytail, like it's bad. Yeah, and this guy, uh, he's. I remember the thing that, okay, so something stands out to me about Bill Denbro. Okay. Two things from the book. One, about 200 pages in, you find out he's bald. That's a weird thing to wait until 200 pages to tell me, right? Well, it's weird because if it took you that long to get to it, then it's not important. And why right, is it so in why there? say it? And that when people say that this is the Moby Dick of horror, that's what it makes me think of. Like, oh, so a shit ton of detail about ropes that no one needs. Like, yeah. that's what it makes me think of. Yeah. So, like, okay, don't tell me 200 pages in because I've already met him. I've seen him in college yeah. and all that stuff. Like, I don't need to know he's bald now because it just confuses my Fucking image. Difference to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it serves no purpose. The other thing is that there's a good 100 pages in there that's just about his uh, MFA program. Are you serious? And about how the professor in the MFA – I don't think it's 100 pages. but uh, Too the, many pages The is professor what you're trying at to the say. MFA yeah. program says that writing uh, popular horror uh, is not real writing. <laughs> uh, and then he gets really proud when he Was sells – Was he bullied in college? He sells a short story. It t- goes into the actual moments and then he sells a short story – and the professor's like, money does not equal talent. Writer Bill Denbro sat in a study pondering exactly how he would brilliantly recall his most recent adventure. Even for an accomplished, celebrated, manly writer such as himself, it was hard to know just where to begin. Did he start with how he had single-handedly organized a rebellion of his non-writer friends against a certain evil? Did he start with how his childhood friend Beverly, now even more calmly and buxom than ever the that even the best writer, like Bill, could fathom? Had surrendered her body to him time and time again? Or should he begin with the tale of how he had rejuvenated Audra, his gorgeous wife, who, though not a writer, was an actress, which is at least second best and like a good thing, with only the power of his masterful biking and masculinity? It was hard to decide. What wasn't hard was Bill's enormous writerly cock. It was resting placid and enormous inside of Bill's sensible dungarees, <laughs> waiting eagerly for its next conquest. Hi, Stephen King here. Just wanted to inter- interject here and say that yes, it is true, writers, especially those from New England, have giant cocks. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll just have to take my word for that. I, I, as for women writers, I'm just funny you. There are no women writers. <laughs> okay, back to this plot. This plot, which is pretty great, right? Right? All right, Stephen King out. Bill ruminated on the events of his life such thus far, marveling at the brilliance that he, a writer, had displaced both displayed both on and off the page. He remembered Sturt's 
his member stirred slightly when he recalled his first triumph against the monster called It. His idea of having all of his friends systematically make disgusting preteen love to lovely Beverly in a manky cavern was truly a stroke of erotic genius. <laughs> Hi there, it's me, Stephen King. <laughs> Winner of the 1996 O. Henry Award for Literary and Penile Excellence. <laughs> now, I, I just wanted to note that I've caught a lot of hell for that child sex scene in my novel. But what you non-writers might not understand is that the child sex is actually a metaphor, have you heard of that, about the loss of one's youth and a commentary on how vaginas are monsters. <laughs> if you're gonna come after me, World Horror Grandmaster at the 1992 World Horror Convention, for the child sex thing? Well, I just can't hear you over the sound of my enormous pulsating testicles. I'm Stephen King, bitches! <laughs> Chief among Bill's victories, other than his myriad of literary accolades and trophies, was reviving his actress wife, Audra, using only a rusty old bicycle and the strength of his uh, love, strength of his love. The thought of her comatose, yet curvaceous, yet still thin, very thin body huddled against him as he rode, made his love hammer spring to attention, and it almost whinnied with need for release. You know, like a prized racehorse. Yeah! Bill undid his dungarees and unleashed his massive writer, writerly beef whistle. He flopped his meat sword sensuously, sensuously, between the pages of his work in progress. <laughs> a book already touted on Airport Magazine's books to watch list. He moaned as he pressed himself between the pages of his own masterful prose and began pumping. Okay, so uh, one more interjection <laughs> from your old pal, SK. Now, this is not a gross thing. It's a very normal writerly thing. <laughs> Writers everywhere practice to masturbate into their own work. It's what we do. Nothing wrong about it. Heck, I got the idea for Cujo after snow blowing my way through the epilogue of misery. <laughs> it's perfectly natural, okay? Perfectly natural. As Bill's need heightened, so too did his turgid monster schlong. Precom beamed the head in eager anticipation, much like the shine on a fresh Pulitzer. He beat on faster and faster against his own words, driven to fiendish delight with his own writerly brilliance. Oh, still, I mean, Bill! Oh, God, Bill! Put a semicolon into my asshole, you magnificent bastard! Yes, Bill moaned as his resolve broke and he was pushed over the edge by his own intelligence. Gasping, sweaty, Bill looked down at his own work. His writer's seed was strewn gloppily on his own writing. His jism was on his writing and all of his manjus was there on writing. <laughs> writing! What's up, bitches? <laughs> it's New England's most celebrated son, Stephen King here. 
Did you like that last bit on writing, on writing? Huh? 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 Stephen King on writing! Stephen King on writing. Available at Booksmith for a throbbing $17.99. Peace out! I'm Stephen King, bitches! The end. And that was Bill Dembro, as written by Molly Sanchez by request. She insisted that she write Stephen King. She did. She was very excited about it. So we had two returning champs, right? Because we last month was... Yeah. Uh, so Molly was a returning champ and Ken was a returning champ. So the turtle, again, we always try to have like a nod to the book and that's not the movie. The turtle doesn't really come up in the miniseries and it doesn't come up at all in the new one. Probably the most difficult thing. And I, in fact, as a big, huge uh, Dark Tower fan, I was surprised that I'd forgotten the turtle. Because mm-hmm. the turtle gets mentioned all the time in the Dark Tower where they're like talking about... there's. Uh, totems that exist at all of these thing, the ley lines that hold the worlds together, mm-hmm. and one of them is the turtle, the turtle. and one's mm-hmm. like the badger. I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah. When they go down to fight Spider, Spider It, it as kids, uh, Spider It exists in some sort of like dream space mm-hmm. uh, as an entity, okay. and another entity there is the turtle. Right. And It believes that the turtle created the world, right. but the turtle's pretty clear that like, Nah, I just hang out here. I'm it's like some turtle. sort of rules guardian or something like sure. that. And maybe it gives like a little bit of advice, but for the most part, it's just this like sleeping turtle. I just feel like this was a really cruel attar- like, was a dick character to, was su- a to dick assign. Move. But we had to do it. We had to do it. Our first story of the second round, children, is titled The Tortoise and the Hairy Balls. <laughs> It's a very good title. Very good title. <laughs> the sex which would not end for another 28 years, if it ever did end, began, so far as I know or can tell, with the turtle and Pennywise 69ing after snorting a shitload of cocaine. <laughs> Their heads bobbed, tilted, dived bravely onto each other's massive monster dicks and continued to suck and lick as Turtle and Pennywise stared deeply, deeply into each other's balls. <laughs> Turtle's balls smelled like swamp ass and Bailey's Irish cream. Pennywise's balls smelled like stale popcorn and regret. His pubes stuck to Turtle's chin like bright red candy floss. Turtle squeezed the clown's bicorn-turned butt plug, which sprang out with the force and joy of a jack-in-the-box. Turtle quickly repositioned himself, making Pennywise his bottom, and went to fucking town on his dumb clown ass. Say it, Turtle grunted. Say her, my little bitch. I'm your little bitch, Pennywise cried out in ecstasy as his eyes rolled to the back of his head. Turtle and Pennywise, eternal frenemies slash fuckboys, initially discovered cocaine during an accidental stumble through the macroverse into Earth, where they fell into a decade humans called the 1980s. Upon their first snort, Turtle and Pennywise locked eyes and immediately started making out. No one had ever seen such a horrifying hookup. Pennywise caressing Turtle's super hard shell. Turtle clawing at Pennywise's pompons. They had always crossed each other in the realm, similar skills and talents, seeking to achieve very different goals. But with the cocaine, they were on the same page. Ah. 
as they finished for the third time that evening in a tastefully decorated condominium. Pennywise rolled around in his own mess of confetti and dollar bills, watching Turtle methodically clean his glasses. The reptile crawled back to the table, readying more lines of coke to strategically place on his ridiculously large and ugly turtle penis. Turtle smiled as he heard Pennywise straighten his posture and his silly straw-like cock and somersault over to him. May I please have some daddy, Pennywise granted. <laughs> Pennywise panted, clown hands grabbing Turtle's scaly knees. Please, I've been good. <laughs> Turtle smiled as he ran a claw through the clown's bright red curly hair. I don't know, sugar. Can you handle another ride? Pennywise started to whimper. Mmm. <laughs> Remember what happened the last time you had this much? Oh, please, Daddy. It won't happen again. The crown cried out. I swear, I want just a little more. I want to feel like a king again. Turtle raised an eyebrow, thinking for a moment, then shrugged. He measured out two comically long lines of cocaine on the table and on his massively large schlong. Okay, here you go, but only because I like making you float. <laughs> Turtle said with a wink and a shudder as Pennywise smashed his nostrils onto the cocaine-covered turtle member, snorting up like a violent vacuum cleaner. Pennywise took the powder flawlessly, licking back, licking back up and down Turtle's shaft to get every last bit. Watching his shell twitch in delight, Turtle groaned out again before turning to take his line with a rolled-up hundred-dollar bill. Like hard-ons and spandex, their eyes bulged out, taking in the details of the super luxe condo. Awards scattered across bookshelves, stacks of contracts and cash on the floor, bottles of booze and bricks of cocaine littered across the kitchen table. Outside of the condo, there was darkness and sadness and mortals scrambling towards them like their lives depended on it. Here, safe in their condo, floating on their highs, the clown and the turtle could be themselves. Here, they were kings immortal gods among men. Pennywise clambered atop Turtle's shell and together they crawled across the beautiful open space condo, taking in their kingdom, grabbing a jar of turtle wax on his majestic ride. The clown gently slid off of Turtle's shell and the clown gently slid off Turtle's shell and rolled him over onto the bed, <clears throat> stroking his gigantic green turtle cock with wax. Talk to me, Daddy. Pennywise crooned as they played footsies, but footsie with their penises instead of feet. <laughs> Tell me what a bad boy I've been. He leaned down and purred. Tell me how terrifying I am. <laughs> turtle slid forward a few inches and his massive turtle dong curved up and around right into Pennywise's storm drain. Pennywise let out a high-pitched squeal, oh yeah, of arousal as Turtle rocked back and forth on his shell, letting his turtle penis be in charge once more. 
You're a nightmare, baby, Turtle growled up at Pennywise. You're a total monster, Pennywise cried out in pleasure again, throwing his head back, riding the cock like a champ until suddenly he froze. I, I see them, the clown said, eyes darting across the room. They're haunting me, Turtle sighed and reached for Pennywise. This happened every time the clown got carried away with blow. <laughs> Get it together, man, Turtle said, lighting up a cigarette. No one's here. Pennywise peered down at Turtle through his fingers. I swear they were here. They were here, he hissed as he curled up into a ball. He pulled at his hair and whimpered as Turtle gently stroked his back. Shh, shh, they're there. They're there, shh, Turtle gently murmured into his ear as though the clown was a horse. <laughs> All right, buddy, let's turn that frown upside down. Pennywise perked up and enthusiastically got into position for Turtle to mount him again. Turtle lurched forward into that bomb clown ass and Pennywise briefly lost himself in pleasure Precum dripping out of his balloon animal. <laughs> Turtle gripped his claws around Pennywise's cocaine-dusted torso and thrust it harder, finding his rhythm once again, only for Pennywise to start yelping again. But I see them, the clown screamed as he thrust his fist against the bedpost. I see dead people. Oh, heaven help me. Pennywise screams quickly turned into sobs as Turtle attempted to spoon him for comfort, but it was no use. Their highs started to fade away. Pennywise whimpered as reality set in. Feeling his power draining, the two creatures woke up to their current state. Stephen King, in full clown makeup, curled up naked in bed, clutching his clown suit and a typewriter. And Aaron Sorkin, creator of The West Wing, and Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, was painted green from head to toe, crawling on the floor with a kiddie pool attached to his back. Oh, Stephen, Aaron murmured as he crawled back to his weeping friend. You sweet summer child. You know these things always come to an end. Aaron looked deeply into Stephen's eyes, brushing away a single manly tear. <laughs> Stephen King grabbed Aaron's hand and kissed it. Thank you for taking these journeys with me, Stephen said. You're the only one who understands me, who accepts me as a monster and as a man. Aaron smiled and nuzzled into Stephen's neck, breathing deeply into his wrinkles. <laughs> no, Stephen. Thank you for letting me be the turtle to your clown. Whether you're near or far, you'll always be my little monster. <laughs> Stephen King giggled, and the two mediocre white male writers <laughs> the two writers kissed as the sun rose, 
It was a new day, and the turtle and clown were men once more. The end. And that was The Turtle, as written by Lily Miller. Long-time participant. In the all of these people. Well, not all these people. Lily and Molly, you can find in our book. Most Lily's of them, stories mo- in our book I, I think most everybody has done the show once, at least. Um. So next up, we have Bev Marsh, who... Oh, God, poor Bev. We broke our rule of not assigning the poor, maligned, only single female character, uh, the token female. We, we broke our rule and assigned her because... Um, it's 2,000 pages with one female character. Exactly. So we just kind of felt like we couldn't not... It's her or, like, the mother of the kid who gets killed in the first chapter. We had to chapter. do it. We had to do it. And for all the messed up shit, at least she has agency. Like, at some point in the book, she discovers agency and she it's has it. True. Um, but, man, it takes a minute. Oh, and there's another female character, Stephen King's wife character in the yes, book. Yes, that's true. And as they far as I can tell, she just right? gets pretty much murdered by... Yeah. Right, like she's an a-, a famous actress, and then wait, but comes, then isn't he in love with Bev anyway? Yeah, but yeah. She comes looking for him, and then she gets kidnapped by Bev's husband. Right, and in a scene that we don't see, yeah, because they're in hotel rooms next to each other, she gets murdered. Jesus Christ! Because she looks like Bev, and she he realizes that she just like he picked the next he picked the next person that looked like her. She gets murdered, and we discover her again as a corpse in the basement. My favorite thing about Bev is that he to show her he loves her, he writes a poem about her hair being on fire. That's uh, the other. It's not Bill. It's, it's not the other Bill. One. It's the it's the fat one that's not fat when he grows up. Uh-huh. He grows up to be the guy from Night Court. Our next story, children, is titled "It's What It's All About." Maybe this was the novel where Stephen King's editor said, Listen, dude, maybe you need to rein some of that shit in. And King just smiled, continued writing with CCR blasting and a hot mug of tea beside him. (laughs) Here are two scenes that were edited out from his first draft because, come on, man, it was already 1,473 pages long. And the grungy sewer scene at the end, you know the one? Yeah, that one where the Losers Club, Loser Innocence together to finish the ritual of Chud, was just 100% essential, right? Right? Scene one, Ben gets a boner in the biblioteca. <laughs> School was out for summer, so Ben Hanscom naturally made a beeline to, to the Derry Public Library before he settled on his final draft of his haiku for Beverly Marsh. He was still mentally workshopping a few lines. He stuck out his left thumb and continued, your hair is winter fire, check. Okay, what else? She's feisty and has those luscious red locks, porcelain skin, new knockers under her plaid dresses, and probably a growing volcanic bush underneath. He continued counting on his fingers, your mountain peaks, five, your smooth snow globes, your supple handlebars, your flaming lady jungle. That's seven, your glistening lady clam, lady pleasure dome, freckled and flaming, five. Ben exhaled heavily. (sighs) Miss Davies, the children's librarian, shot him a cool look and for a second Ben thought she could read his mind. But she just nodded her head approvingly and smiled. Boy, if she knew. Okay, my big fat one, four, 
my juicy fat one, five, my pulsating jackhammer, my man meat in you, my beef stick in you, my love bacon, my sizzling corn dog, my giant meatloaf, my vanilla filled Twinkie. His stomach grumbled. His mother would surely have a snack waiting for him. He had to finish writing this haiku and hightail it out of there especially if Henry Bowers and his goons were waiting for him. Tug at my slingshot, five. My heart, my heart? No, my dick. Yeah. My dick burns there too. Wait, burning isn't a good thing. Hmm. Pulses? Quakes? Aches? Hardens? Longs? Christ on a bike, his chupa chup was a throbbing with all this talking. His upper lip started to sweat. His buttered biscuits tightened. His little sausage pulsated. Time to stop writing before he juiced his shorts. Ben decided to go with his original tamer version for Bev because it was time to get home and tug, to tug and a snack. <laughs> it's 1985. And the Loser Club members, minus Stan Uris, are now grown-ups with adult problems and floating memories of their Pennywise stalked, spider-infested, leopard-chased, blood-curdling, 29 Neil Bolt steel-centered adolescent year of 1958. Mike calls them back to Derry, Maine to discuss a game plan. Foggy, blood-spurting, heart-racing memories slowly come back to them as they, like in true stereotypical 90s horror movie fashion, agree to split up, dispersing throughout the town to see if this pan-dimensional beast and its myriad of creep-tastic manifestations are in fact on a 27-year killing cycle. Spoiler alert, it is! <laughs> Scene 2, Ben, Beverly, and the Balloon Bonanza. A white hot tingle traveled up Ben's spine. He inhaled and ducked down behind a card catalog to watch as the Beverly Marsh walked past the front desk towards the periodical section. To Ben, she had always been more than what her father saw in her. She wasn't a frail little bluebird, no sir. She was a firecracker and had proven time and time again, especially at the infamous apocalyptic rock fight to be their Wonder Woman with a slingshot. The whip-smart, fire-headed beauty was always better than the shithole town and deserved to give it the finger and get the hell out of Dodge. He only wished he had gone with her. Her hand swept across the aging spines of the shelf books, just as Ben had always done. She looked caught in a daydream. What was she doing here, Ben thought. The library was where he first saw it. Not Bev. Bev had her nightmare field encounter with an ocean spray flooding of blood in her tiled bathroom. Her fiery mane hovered like a halo. The words winter fire and volcanic bush flashed in his mind. Oh Lord, was she still smoking? He wanted to suck her snow globes raw, lick her plump lady lips between his teeth until they were dry, and make her shout out his name right here in the goddamn library. Bev knew exactly what she was doing. In the corner of her eye, she had spotted Ben trying to blend into the wall in front of that shitty railroad mural. He had grown out of his baby fat into a hotshot architect and had become a 
chiseled hunk of eye scrumptiousness. A gentleman with a literary heart, an intellectual noggin, and a raging heart on. The type of specimen she wanted to please and be pleased by right now. Earlier at the Chinese restaurant, she had barely resisted the urge to pounce on his lap, suck on his tongue, and rip off his tight torso-hugging Oxford. Lick his washboard abs like an ice cream and make him moan like she had imagined he would when he was all alone, when she was all alone with her thick wooden slingshot, the one with the trusty knotted handle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you all get it. She nearly pulverized that fortune cookie in her palm when Ben had excused himself to go to the restroom and grazed the small of her back with his index finger. Hot damn, she wanted his launching cum rocket all up in her business. <laughs> and if that motherfucking ass clown was going to finally drag them down to the hot garbage underbelly of dairy and take them out for reals, Ben and Bev were going to get down and dirty, dirty their way first. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> she wiggled out of her thong. It fell to the carpet with an audible thud. Because <laughs> it was drenched with her tangy womanly butter. She shimmied left, hiked up her skirt to flash a fine slappable badonkadonk, and then sashayed her hips to reveal an autumnal pubic forest. Ben salivated like Cujo. He wanted to sink his canines into her juicy rear end and work his way north to lap up her sweet, sweet syrup. He fast walked over to the supply closet, and just as he turned the corner, her mitts enveloped his swollen joystick. She squeezed him twice, his knees weakened. He braced himself, planting his sweating palms on her blouse balloons. She exhaled a steamy breath into his ear and nibbled. Ben loosened his belt quickly and lowered his zipper. Ben, Bev karate chopped his cockies to the floor in one fell swoop. She grabbed him by his sizable ass pillows, skewered herself on top, and pressed him into the carpet, riding him like a carousel horse. This was finally fucking happening, and fast. His scream filling was going to stuff her up like cannoli in three, two, one. A, and then, oh, a blood-red balloon floated from his peripheral to directly behind her head. As he thrust his hips in turn, the balloon reflected a face, a face with jagged razor blades for teeth, dark bleeding gums, and piercing mustard-colored peepers. He held his breath and shut his eyes, too. I love you, Ben, Bev whispered. It's always been you. She slammed her hips against his in one final oomph, three. Ben whipped himself out suddenly. His cock made the sound of a plunger finally pulling out of a turd congested porcelain god. Instead of erupting inside her with the entirety of his body convulsing from decades long buildup of fantasy and longing, he released his sticky man jam goodness all over the red balloon. It went pop on impact. He then wilted into the carpet, beaming like a child with a strawberry milkshake for breakfast. TLDR, Stephen Edward King is one beautiful, twisted motherfucker. <laughs> the end. 
That was Beverly Marsh, as written by Jamie Lee Real. Who has got the biggest fucking Stephen King obsession, and I love getting her every year for our Stephen King timber slash tober. Hey guys, so that was it. Well, we uh, it's worth saying that we did lose a recording. Yeah. Um, thanks to Damien Ledbetter for your story. Um, there were some weird audio issues, and most of your story is missing. But uh, Damien Ledbetter was our sixth writer. Uh, we love him and hope he comes back. And we're sorry we lost your story. Technology is imperfect. We we'll are try imperfect. better. Casey's a flawed human. I mean, also, this is like a, a rigged system plugged into a rigged system. And it breaks all the fucking time. It's a mess. But that's it for it. And that's that. That's been our fucking podcast, my dude. Um, ShipwreckSF, hashtag ShipwreckSF. Um, follow us on Facebook for show updates. We will update this more frequently. Love you, bye. Much love. See you after a time. <laughs> after a time. <laughs> <laughs>